For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. Epic Virtual Charter School announces it's facing massive cutbacks after enrollment plummets. Superintendent Bart Benfield tells parents three-fifths of the students, or more than 30,000, have left the district. While exact numbers haven't been announced, it means Epic will be facing a reduction in force probably through the rest of this month. Ryan, do you think the ending of the pandemic is the only reason why students are leaving the school? I mean, I think that there's certainly been a lot of uncertainty, uh, you know, which uh, maybe that's not the best way to say that. But there has been a lot of uncertainty that parents have faced about the future of Epic Given the uh, investigations, the audits, the ongoing uh, machinations that are happening within the school board itself and then within the virtual charter school board, I think if you're a parent and you've been paying attention to all of that, you know, that definitely could raise some concerns about is my student's school going to end in the middle of a semester? Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, I think that the, the, the driving uh, force for all of this is that we are returning to some new normal, um, you know, as the pandemic moves into an endemic phase, uh, as, um, you know, vaccines are, are more and more available. And now they're available for a huge uh, chunk of school kids and the ability for them to go back to in-person learning. That's frankly the preference for most parents. It's the preference for most students. Uh, I think that uh, online learning uh, or some blended learning is is a, a valuable option for a lot of students and parents. But I think that we could all see the writing on the wall that when the pandemic uh, reached some you know leveling point uh, that we were going to see a reduction in the number of students enrolled at Epic and they get their money on a per student basis and that was going to you know cause them to reassess the growth that they've experienced over the last year or so. Neva. Well, I I think what we're seeing is uh, what we would have expected. I mean, when we had um, the number somewhere 60,000 plus when it ballooned up uh, during the, the during the pandemic that uh, uh, Epic had is in, in terms of the numbers of students enrolled. Now they're back in the 38, 39,000 range between the um, between the two entities, the two different versions of school operations. Um, and I think I think what they've said themselves is that they're right sizing and really uh, getting getting in a in a different place now that our enrollment is normalizing, going back to as Ryan said, folks making a decision whether they want the the virtual or blended. Uh, uh, school options or whether they want to go back to just regular brick and mortar schools where many of these kids were before uh, COVID hit. So I, th- I think that with that, obviously any um, uh, school is going to have to, an administration are going to have to make adjustments. They're going to have to, uh, uh, they're going to have to have a reduction in force. If you have, if you've added a lot of folks because of the explosion in your enrollment, then it stands to reason when that reduces itself in enrollment that you're going to make those adjustments accordingly. So I don't know that there's any real big surprise here other than the fact that we are seeing the shift and in their own words, uh, the kind of normalization of their own enrollment uh, uh, as a result of folks getting back into a more regular routine. 30,000 plus students still one of uh, the largest school districts right. in the state, maybe, maybe, I, I, you know, I don't know the, the numbers for OKCPS or, or Tulsa public schools right off the top of my head, but maybe, you know, bigger than one of those. I mean, this is, this is a huge number of students that they've got. So they're going to, you know, still be a, 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 an important 
aspect of the Oklahoma education landscape. I think the, the bigger news out of Epic this week is uh, the new chairman, uh, you know, sitting in front of legislators saying that the previous leadership and the founders of Epic had gaslit, and that's their word, uh, gaslit uh, the media, lawmakers, um, and and you know that they had witnessed uh, evidence of embezzlement. Um, you know, that's those are some pretty stark and and um, unconditional criticism coming from current leadership of past leadership and including the founders of Epic. So um, that's that's an interesting turn as well. We we haven't seen kind of that own ownership and admission that the things that Epic has been doing uh, were problematic, at least not from Epic itself. Right. And, you know, I think it's I think it's interesting also that two years uh, after a state audit began on the shuttered Seaworth Academy, while we talk about these different uh, uh, the different charter schools and the scrutiny that all of these schools, just like uh, school districts, uh, brick and mortar go through. I mean, we're now seeing that there is uh, um, the district attorney, Oklahoma County District Attorney David Prater, has said this week that he's launching a criminal investigation into what happened at Seaworth Academy. Certainly some of the initial uh, reports of, from this audit that are coming out, I think we'll be talking about for uh, some time to come because it certainly, I think, speaks to the need of uh, continued uh, heightened scrutiny that the boards for all of these uh, uh, for all of these entities have to be engaged and know what's going on, not only at the administration level, but across the board. State lawmakers are bringing an end to their special session on redistricting. The original Republican plan to cut up CD5 into rural districts passed the House on Wednesday, and the GOP majority killed a Democratic plan on Tuesday to keep the district largely intact. Eva, do you see the current plan moving forward without any problems? I think so. I mean, I think uh, what we'll see is the is the, the week move move through the process and on Friday that both chambers will pass redistricting uh, in the fashion that it's been set, that it's been uh, outlined. I think what we've seen is that there's really been bipartisan support uh, for the uh, legislative uh, redistricting uh, lines. And the real, the real conversation was the Democrats uh, making, um, uh, making the stand and making their case that they didn't like uh, the congressional lines, specifically the 5th District uh, uh, lines, the way it has been drawn. But that's, uh, you know, you have to almost uh, attribute that attribute that to loyal opposition. I mean, when you are in the, the minority, um, clearly there, there are going to be some issues. But by and large, I think what we can continue to say, and I, and I don't think there'd be much disagreement, is that this process has been, you know, it's been open, transparent, has worked well. And I think that uh, we're seeing that come to fruition this week as they've come back in for special session. I think we'll. Exp I think uh, from what uh, from what has been said, they will adjourn uh, today, Friday, and they will um, wait to sine die until um, I think the 26th. So that allows them at least the option for an override. I think no one expects that the governor is not going to go along with uh, with the redistricting lines and process as drawn, but uh, it does give them that option to come back in if necessary. Ryan. Well, you know, I think that the the bipartisan support that you've seen for the legislative districts, the state legislative districts, I think is a result of transparency and openness in that process. So we, you hear from Democratic leadership, uh, especially in the House, uh, you know, Representatives Munson and uh, Representatives uh, Virgin, uh, the the 
uh, incoming leader and the outgoing leader of the Democratic caucus in the House, you know, they said that they had a, a role in this. Uh, you know, so it would be difficult for them to be critical of these state legislative districts that were drawn, even if they're not, you know, incredibly happy about it. The where, as Neva said, the contention comes in, it's in these congressional districts. Um, and when we think about uh, that openness and transparency from what we've heard from Democratic leaders in the House and the Senate, they weren't in those rooms. They didn't have the same kind of openness and transparency with those congressional districts. So you're going to see, as, as Neva said, loyal opposition. It's unlikely to go anywhere. We saw competing maps introduced in the House and the Senate. We saw Representative Andy Fugate do something that I think was desperately needed, uh, which was to try to put a question. He had a resolution that would have created an initiative, uh, not an initiative, but a ballot question for voters to consider in 2022 uh, that would have created an independent redistricting commission. Um, and so that lawmakers aren't doing this. I mean, I, I want to be clear that you know I'm not you know uh, an apologist for you know what the Democrats have done in the past when they had a majority. Uh, you know, it you know it shouldn't be Democrats or Republicans controlling this. And uh, I think that what we've seen, uh, in particular with these congressional districts, is a pretty uh, uh, brazen attempt—not attempt. I mean, a, a brazen uh, plan to divide the fifth district up uh, to make it less competitive for Democrats for the next decade. My my thing with with the the GOP and in, in doing this is just own it. Uh, I mean, Democrats did it. You're doing it now. Don't don't sit around and try to say that it's anything but. Um, you know, they've tried to explain it with the consolidation of military bases. And, you know, there's holes in that argument. The real thing here is they wanted to make sure that the incumbent member of Congress, Stephanie Bice, or any Republican that chooses to run after uh, Bice does something else, if she ever does anything else, uh, has a distinct advantage in the fifth district. Um, and so just own it. And then at the end of the day, Oklahomans, we just need to realize whether they're Republicans in charge or Democrats in charge, they shouldn't be drawing these lines. Uh, they don't get they shouldn't get to choose their voters. Voters should get to choose politicians. And uh, do, this, do you see have you heard any word, Ryan, about possible lawsuits against this? Any challenge? No, I haven't. I, I haven't heard. I'm, I you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if folks or organizations are looking for opportunities to, to litigate. But, um, you know, the United States Supreme Court hasn't foreclosed every uh, door to challenge redistricting and reapportionment schemes that come out of state legislatures, but they've narrowed that window considerably. Uh, so yeah. what, what, you, what you have in your arsenal to attack these things in, in the court is a lot less than it was say, you know, 10 years ago, whenever we went through the last uh, redistricting process. And I think it's important to note that there have been there have been legal challenges in in the past, and they all have uh, they they all have been uh, cast aside because I think again the process whether people like some elements or, or not or like the outcome or not the bottom line is it is a it's a process that matches what the what needed to happen in terms of population balance. Uh, and it does afford, as we've talked about before on this program, it affords the opportunity for most Oklahomans to remain in the legislative districts they're currently in, in the congressional district they're currently in. So uh, in terms of any seismic change, it's just not there. And I think uh, we have to, uh, in, in, in my mind, applaud the efforts of everyone that's been involved in this from start to finish. The time is running out for death row inmate Julius Jones, and we are recording this on Thursday morning. And as of now, he is still waiting for Governor Stitt to approve his clemency recommendation to avoid execution this afternoon. 
Meanwhile, his supporters and family have tried to reach out to the governor and even State Superintendent Joy Hoffmeister says Stitt should approve the Pardon and Parole Board's recommendation. Ryan, how will they react if this execution moves forward? You know, I, I can't I can't even put words to it. I uh, you know, we're taping this, as you said, Michael, on on Thursday morning, um, you know, less than 12 hours, you know, 4 p.m. Central is the uh, moment at which the state of Oklahoma would begin the execution of Julius Jones unless one person. And that's the stark reality that we're in right now is that one person in Oklahoma, Governor Stitt, controls the levers of death. And I am uh, I'm pretty raw. Uh, and, you know, and, you know, kind of consumed with this feeling of, of, of helplessness um, and, and knowing that, you know, many of our listeners are going to be listening to this on, on Friday and uh, aren't. Uh, so and we're, we're taping this and, you know, at that point, Julius uh, may very well be not on this, not of this earth anymore. Um, I, I think that this is, um, you know, an example of what happens whenever we empower one individual. Uh, with with this kind of awesome power, the pardon and parole board twice overwhelmingly has said that Julius Jones deserves clemency of some sort, whether that's to be released or commuted with life with parole uh, or life without the possibility of parole. There are options here to save his life that aren't irreversible. There is doubt, and there's also doubt in the state's ability to conduct an execution. Uh, within the framework of the United States Constitution. We're just a couple of weeks away from the latest botched execution that the state of Oklahoma has performed on a contemned individual. And the Pardon and Parole Board uh, earlier this week has said that they were recommending uh, clemency for another individual that they believe is guilty, but they're doing it because they don't think that the state uh, is competent to carry out an execution. Um, you know, regardless of what happens, you know, I, I, I was at the vigil Wednesday night in front of the governor's mansion uh, where his mansion was uh, blockaded off by uh, uh, Oklahoma Highway Patrol troopers um, with, with their weapons out, um, you know, guarding the mansion. But what I saw more importantly was a diverse, durable coalition that is spanning the entire political spectrum. I mean, folks from CPAC and the Trump administration uh, to folks on the left. Um, coming together. And this may be a moment of reckoning um, for whether or not we trust the state with the ability to take a person's life. Uh, unfortunately, uh, and I hope, and, and I, I'm, not, I'm not a praying person, but I, everybody that is praying, I encourage you to do that. If you're listening to this on Thursday, call the governor's office um, and let's not make that too late for Julius Jones. But he did tell uh, the music artist, JB, he said, if the state kills me, uh, make sure that this doesn't ha happen to anyone else. And that's, I think, what all of us that are uh, championing Julius's cause right now intend to do. Neva. Well, I mean, I think there are a couple of other points that need to be made in this, in this conversation, uh, particularly on this day. I mean, um, when we think about the fact that for the past 21 years um, that both the, the state and the federal judicial system have been involved in scrutinizing this case. And I think when we talk about uh, when we talk about it, we have to look at the process that that has gone forward for these two decades. I mean, a total of 13 appellate judges um, have uh, looked at have looked at the uh, the case have reviewed Mr. Jones' conviction and his sentence, and in every instance, they have said that there was, in their words, overwhelming 
evidence of uh, Mr. Jones' guilt. So I think when we look at capital cases that are always intensely scrutinized uh, and frankly, frequently reversed, I think the number is something like approximately one out of two times uh, uh, we see reversals. And yet now we see a case that has just moved through the process that we, um, I think as, uh, um, as Americans, uh, respect and hope that we do have a, a, a process, a judicial process that affords every, every person the opportunity for, uh, for a fair review and for appellate review. And so I think in the midst of uh, so much of the heightened uh, 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 kind of information flow out there and in, in, the, in these last days leading up to uh, uh, what the governor will do in terms of his final decision, I think it is important uh, looking at it to be sure to take it in its total context. The Pentagon is rejecting the stance of Oklahoma's new National Guard leader on mandates. A day after Governor Stitt announced Thomas Mancino as the new adjutant general to replace Michael Thompson, Mancino announced there would be no repercussions against members who didn't get vaccinated. But a Pentagon spokesperson says Oklahoma Guard members are still required to follow U.S. Department of Defense rules. Neva, what do you think? Who do you think has the power here? Well, I think that remains to be seen. I mean, obviously, uh, we're hearing uh, uh, at the national level, they believe they do. And uh, the governor has said that he believes he does uh, in his estimation as commander in chief of the uh, uh, of the uh, uh, of the guard when it is not being federalized and and called out uh, by the federal government, uh, by the Pentagon. Uh, so, you know, I think this is, uh, I think it's going to be uh, uh, very interesting to watch. I mean, clearly the governor made a change in his uh, adjutant general because uh, it was clear that uh, uh, his uh, former adjutant general was supportive of the vaccine, had even been on social media talking about that uh, he'd received, uh, 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 he'd received his shots. Had and so, you know, I think I think this is again in the climate that we're in, with the whole conversation about uh, the vac- vaccinations and whether people should be compelled to have to take it in terms of being able to retain employment at any level. I mean, this is the ongoing fight and conversation, and I don't think uh, we're going to see any quick resolution. Ryan, well, I, I think that the power is pretty clear here. It belongs with the Pentagon. Um, yeah, I, you know, I've often scratched my head at, at Governor Stitt, who came into office with perhaps more political capital than any governor in, in recent history. Um, you know, so many people had hopes for him and, and what he would bring to, to the state. And he used that political power up front with the legislature. He cashed that check uh, to get a very expansive grant of power and authority to the executive branch. Uh, and he was successful in doing that. And, it, you know, good luck wrenching that away from his from his hands uh, any time that he's in office. I mean, it, it's just not going to happen. Um, but along with, you know, after he cashed that in, he immediately began drawing lines in the sand and, and picking fights, oftentimes unnecessary fights with some of the most powerful interests in the state of Oklahoma, you know, tribal governments, just to name one. And now, uh, it's, I, I just, I just wonder if he's sitting around at, at the governor's mansion, uh, in the morning and, and his advisors are like, well, you know, we're, we're kind of embattled on all fronts here. Let's go pick a fight with 
not just, you know, any army, but the greatest army on the face of the planet. Uh, and, and, you know, and that's ever existed. Um, and let's go pick a fight directly with the Pentagon. Um, I, I just don't, I don't see what their ground here is. I mean, the governor's saying that, you know, if they're not federalized, that they're under his control. Um, but, you know, these troops are going up every weekend, one weekend a month at least for training. And there's no secret that they are federalized in terms of readiness. I mean, and that's what this is. And we can talk about vaccine mandates whenever it comes to private businesses or schools. And I think that that's a separate policy discussion. Our men and women in uniform are very uh, used to uh, having vaccine mandates that go above and beyond what any of us ever have to deal with. I mean, and none of us on, on this uh, show, I'm assuming, have ever had to get the, the anthrax vaccine. Uh, but, but you talk to folks in service, boy, they've got that anthrax vaccine. And it's about readiness. You know, whether that is being able to respond to a natural weather disaster in, your, in our backyard, or whether that's maybe to be deployed at some you know, far-flung place in the globe to protect our interest in freedom. Um, they need to be ready to do that. I think the Pentagon has the authority to do this. I think that any troop that listens to the governor over this instead of their uh, Pentagon commanders will probably suffer some consequences and the governor is not going to be able to help them out. You know, it's interesting. The uh, Oklahoma National Guard, their own statistics that they have uh, released show that 40% of the state's uh, Army National Guard members are fully vaccinated. And I think it was close to 90% of the uh, um, of the uh, National Guard, National Air National Guard members fully vaccinated. So, um, you know, again, you're right, Ryan. I mean, we're going to see what you know who, wh which hand uh, is the uh, the one that wins on this. But uh, under federal law, I mean, Title 32, which is what they're all uh, contending on both sides uh, that they they have uh, they have the reason to do what they do. Uh, it really. It does say that National Guard members are under the control of the government. Government, they're paid by the state, by the governor, but they are paid by the federal government. So it is going to be a it's going to be a clash here, and we'll just have to we'll have to see what happens or whether there's a, in some fashion a compromise or some ability to uh, kind of get past this without some um, you know repercussions, as you say, Ryan, uh, either on members themselves or um, on the state. Late last week, Governor Stitt reversed a move by the State Department of Health to allow non-binary citizens to change their birth certificates. An executive order from the governor would end the practice to put it into place after the, the, the practice put into place after the agency came to a settlement in a lawsuit by an Oklahoma non-binary gender resident. Stitt says the settlement was not approved or reviewed by his administration. Ryan, do you think this will just restart the previous lawsuit against the state? Well, so, you know, and to be clear, uh, the individual that that uh, had petitioned the state for a non-binary designation on their birth certificate, they live in Oregon. Uh, they, they were born here. They had their birth certificate in Oklahoma. They live in Oregon. They'd had uh, they'd done everything that they needed to do in Oregon. Uh, and Oregon courts had recognized a, a change uh, for a non-binary designation on government documents. And that order was what the state was being asked to recognize. And so the state all, uh, initially said no. There was a federal lawsuit that was filed. You had a settlement that came out of that. And then the state moved forward and, and granted the non-binary designation on a, on a birth certificate. You know, I think that, uh, you know, first and foremost, I mean, there's there's a lot to talk about here. And I think that there's a conversation that, you know, has to happen within society. But uh, at the outset, I think we can say that the governor's pronouncement that, you know, folks are born either 
uh, a boy or a girl, period, just isn't accurate. Uh, most people, most people, overwhelming number of people are born as a boy or a girl. And the overwhelming majority of those people grow up to continue to identify uh, with, with that gender that they, uh, that, that they presented with whenever they were born. However, there are, uh, you know, especially if you're, if you're one of them, it's not an insignificant number of individuals that are born intersex, uh, meaning that they biologically have traits uh, consistent with male and female. Um, most intersex people, um, at, at some point in their life, you know, continue to identify with the gender uh, that they most uh, uh, appropriate or that they that they most likely uh, present with. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, that's not always the case. And so, when we have these indeterminate situations here, where you've got somebody, you know, and that's just with intersex. Uh, you know, I think when we move on to non-binary uh, that isn't intersex, because not all non-binary individuals are intersex. You know, we've come such a long ways in, in, in warp speed in terms of a recognition of, of rights. You know, if, you know, I was visiting with a friend of mine, um, a trans rights activist in Oklahoma, who went through the process of having her birth certificate changed to reflect her gender uh, as it exists today. Um, but most Oklahomans don't know a non-binary person. And I think that when we began to see the breakthrough on things like gay marriage, it was somebody knowing somebody that was gay. So most Oklahomans haven't thought about non-binary. They haven't thought about gender identity or sexuality or any of those things, but they're going to. And as they do, I think that that conversation will affect some policy. I think the governor's knee-jerk reaction here, though, uh, you know, is at, at the very least, um, you know, harmful to a lot of folks that are biologically uh, uh, non-binary. Neva. Well, I think what I mean, what the governor did uh, in ordering the State Department of Health to stop amending birth certificates in in a way that is inconsistent right now with state law. And uh, he, uh, you know, basically told the agency to uh, remove from the from the state website any reference to amending birth certificates. Again, that is inconsistent with state law. And I think what we see in the larger conversation here is that lawmakers, when they come back uh, uh, early next year in session, uh, no doubt uh, we'll uh, have this have this conversation with um, bills that will be advanced on you know both sides of the conversation. But I think when you when you look at what's occurred here, you basically had what was described as rogue uh, bureaucrats uh, doing something unilaterally uh, in settling a, a, a lawsuit, and 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 it was outside the the scope of their. Uh, responsibility or ability to do that because it's outside prescribed state law right now. So that this is, I mean, there are legal questions involved here. Uh, there's certainly the, the, the issue of how that will involve the larger conversation. But I think, um, I think the governor and legislative leaders have made it clear right up front where they stand on this and we'll see how it moves forward next session. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff or management. The programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members or listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.